The Lord be with you. Let us pray. Lord, teach thy people to love thy house, the best of all dwellings, thy scriptures, best of all books, thy sacraments, best of all gifts, the communion of saints, best of all company, and that we may as one family and in one place give thanks and adore thy glory. Help us to keep always thy day, the first of days, holy unto thee, our maker, our resurrection, and our life. God blessed forever. Amen. Well, welcome back. It has been a bit of a haphazard schedule during this spring semester uh, due to the celebration of Easter, and then we had tea room, so you may not even remember what we've been studying here in the Rector's Forum, and it would not be a surprise to me if that were the case, but we are in an ongoing study of John's Gospel, and right now we find ourselves in the sixth chapter. So if you have your Bibles with you, if you would be so kind as to go ahead and open them up to John chapter 6. Again, let me encourage you to bring your Bibles with you so that you can read the text, mark the text, and by God's grace, inwardly digest it as well, that it may take root in your life and bring forth in you the fruit of good living. So John chapter 6, we're going to begin at verse 41. I'll go back then and just refresh your memory as to the context. But these are the verses that we're going to look at today. So the Jews grumbled about him, that is Jesus, because he said, I am the bread that came down from heaven. They said, is not this Jesus, the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know? How does he now say, I have come down from heaven? Jesus answered them, do not grumble among yourselves. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up on the last day. It is written in the prophets, and they will be taught by God. Everyone who has heard and learned from the Father comes to me. Not that anyone has seen the Father except he who is from God. He has seen the Father. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes has eternal life. I am the bread of life. Your fathers ate the manna in the wilderness, and they died. This is the bread that comes down from heaven, so that the one may eat of it and not die. I am the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread that I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. The Jews then disputed among themselves, saying, How can this man give us his flesh to eat? So Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. For my flesh is true food, and my blood is true drink. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me, and I in him. As the living Father sent me, and I live because of the Father, so whoever feeds on me, he also will live because of me. This is the bread that came down from heaven, not like the bread the fathers ate and died. Whoever feeds on this bread will live forever. Jesus said these things in the synagogue as he taught at Capernaum. Now, we said that the context for this is one of Jesus' great miracles, that he had just performed the extraordinary miracle of the multiplication of the fish and the loaves, whereby he took five loaves of bread, two small fish, and he fed that vast multitude that had been following him there in Galilee. It's important to remember, and we'll come back to this in a moment, Jesus was extremely popular at this point 
in his ministry. That's why these huge crowds were following him wherever he went. Jesus, when he taught, he taught differently from the scribes and the Pharisees. He was one who taught with authority. He had a magnetic personality. I I get very frustrated with some of the depictions that we see of Jesus in artwork because they, they make Jesus out to be this sort of this weak, effeminate individual. And that is not the Jesus of the Bible at all. Jesus was probably a rather rugged individual. He traveled everywhere he went on foot. Uh, he had been trained as a carpenter. Furthermore, he was not a sanctimonious individual by any means. Jesus was obviously somebody who enjoyed a good time. We're told that he was invited to the wedding feast in Cana of Galilee. And if you know anything about first century Jewish wedding celebrations, those were raucous events. And Jesus was welcome amongst people who were having a good time. Not just a wild time, but a good time. Jesus was the person who came to bring joy. And that's one of the points of that miracle. So Jesus was a strong, rugged individual. Jesus was a magnetic personality. And that's why people were drawn to him. They were drawn to him. It was one of the reasons why the scribes and the Pharisees were so frustrated with Jesus. Here they were. They'd received all of this training. They'd gone to all of the rabbinical academies. They had been formally licensed by the Sanhedrin to preach and to teach. Jesus had none of that. And yet when Jesus taught, it was like E.F. Hutton. People listened and everybody was drawn to Jesus. And there was a great deal of jealousy on the part of the Jewish religious leaders. Well, these huge crowds were following Jesus at this point in his ministry, amazed by his teaching ability, by his authority, but also, as we have seen, amazed by the signs and the wonders that he performed, by the extraordinary feats that he was able to do. We saw earlier in this gospel that Nicodemus had come to Jesus under the cover of darkness, and John tells us that Nicodemus was a member of the Pharisees, that he was a member of the Sanhedrin, he was an influential, powerful now, educated man, but the first words out of his mouth when Jesus opens the door, as it were, are these, we know that you are a man who has come from God because no one could do the things that you are doing unless God were with him. So yes, Jesus was extremely popular at this point. He's fed the 5,000, but we're told that he then, after the sunset, got his disciples into a boat and sent them across the Sea of Galilee while he went up on the mountainside to pray. Now, you know the rest of the story. They got caught in this storm. Jesus came to their rescue walking on the water. But the point is that the next morning, uh, the crowds, which had been fed and satisfied, satisfied to the brim, in fact, there were 12 baskets full of leftovers, they're hungry again. And they go looking for Jesus to meet their physical needs, their felt needs. And he's not there. And they conclude that he must have, at some point, gotten into a boat and gone to the other side of the Sea of Galilee. Although they weren't sure how that could be because there had been this windstorm and all of these boats had been driven into the shore. But they concluded that was the only way to get to the other side of the Sea of Galilee. They never thought that Jesus, of course, would walk on the water. And so they themselves raced to the other side of the Sea of Galilee where they found him. And the first question out of their mouths was this. How did you get here? And, and everybody's looking for you. And do you recall Jesus' reply? Jesus said, I tell you the truth, you're looking for me because you ate your fill of the fish and the loaves. But do not strive for that food which only satisfies for a time and leaves you hungering again. Strive for that food which the Son of Man will give you, which if you eat of it will satisfy you forever. 
And they said, sir, give us this bread. And that's when Jesus launches in to this extraordinary teaching. We call it the bread of life discourse in which he explains that he is the bread of life. He is the bread of life which can satisfy them fully and completely. Now, when Jesus gets to the end of it, and that's where we pick up the narrative today, we find that the people are murmuring against him. I think the last time we were together, I pointed out that that is a wonderful word that's translated here in the ESV as grumbled, but either grumble or murmur, that's one of those onomatopoeia words that sounds like the thing that it's describing, like the word thwack or thud. That's what this word is, murmur, 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 grumble, 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 grumble. You know what it's like. There's, the, the, there's this, this spirit of discontent that sort of goes through the crowd. They are troubled by this. And we said that what troubled them, one of the reasons that sparked this murmuring was this claim, these extraordinary claims that Jesus was making for himself. That he was the true bread which had come down from heaven. That if they fed on him, they would be satisfied for eternal life. They were offended by that. Who does this man think he is? We, we know where you come from. Have you ever had somebody say that to you? It's one of the hardest things. This is why I think Jesus says that it's, you know, only in a hometown and among your own kin that a prophet is not accepted. It's because you can be, live a notorious lifestyle as a young person and then you come to faith and, and you, be, you come back to your hometown and to your family or to your friends and, and, and you're trying to live a different lifestyle and they say, oh, don't pull that over on us. We know exactly who you, oh, we remember. And then they pull out the whole catalog of things that you've done. They'll pull out the rod of blame and beat you with it. Whatever it is, that's what they'll do. And that's what they were doing to Jesus. Oh, die, bread of life. Don't. We're not sure how you did that trick of the fish and the loaves. We're not exactly sure about that, but we know who you come, where you come from. We know your mother and your father, Joseph. We know that you're nothing but a carpenter. And so we're told they murmured, they grumbled against him. They took offense, number one, at his claims about himself. Number two, they took offense... And what he had to say about them, namely that they could not satisfy themselves, try as they might. They could not meet the deepest needs of their hearts. And they were offended by that. I mean, nobody likes to be told that they've got problems. How many of you have ever seen the movie Rooster Cogburn starring John Wayne and Katherine Hepburn? Anybody seen that movie? That's a great movie, by the way. I mean, anything with John Wayne and Katherine Hepburn is a winner. It's just as simple as that. But there's this, if you know the story of that movie, it's the story of this one-eyed marshal who's overweight, drinks too much, swears too much, and bathes too little. And it's played by John Wayne. He's Rooster Cogburn. His real name is Reuben J. Cogburn, but everybody calls him Rooster because he's kind of a strutting bird. He is paired up with this unlikely partner. It's Catherine Hepburn, who plays the daughter of a missionary. And, and there's this give and take in, in this relationship between the two as they're going off in search of these outlaws. And they've been paired up, as I said. And she's always, the whole way through this, preaching at him. And notice I said preaching at him. 
I mean, she's really giving it to him about how he, you know, he, he bathes too little and he drinks too much and he needs to have balance in his life and all of this. And at one point, this is one of my favorite lines in the whole movie, at one point in the movie, Catherine Hepburn's character turns to John Wayne. She says, Reuben, you don't like me very much, do you? And John Wayne, as only John Wayne can do it, says, well, sister, it ain't that I don't like you. It's just that no man likes to be told that he's high smelling and low down. <laughs> it's true, isn't it? I mean, who likes to be told that you're high smelling and low down? Who likes to be told that you're a sinner, that you cannot satisfy your own needs? And so we're told that they took offense at Jesus. And then he added insult to injury, as it were, because he said, and furthermore, not only could they not satisfy themselves, they did not even have the ability to come to him. The only way they were able, going to be able to come to him and be satisfied fully was if the Father quickened their hearts and their minds and drew them. And so we're told that they took offense. Now, oftentimes when somebody does that to us, we want to give some sort of a reaction. We want to try to defend ourselves. And it's interesting to note that Jesus did not try to do that here in John chapter 6. He did not try to defend himself, and simply, instead he simply restrated his position. He simply explained to them who he was and what he had come to do. And we said that oftentimes we are offended by Jesus for precisely the same reasons. But we are in just as dire a need for his sustenance, the sustenance that he can provide as these people in John chapter 6. Well, that brings us to the point today where we have to ask the question, how is it that we feed on Christ? And Jesus says that we can never have eternal life. We're never going to be satisfied unless we feed on him. How is it that you and I feed on Christ what does he mean when he says that? That whoever feeds on me or drinks of the cup that I shall give him shall be truly satisfied. Well, the obvious answer to this is that we feed on God through his word. His word is true food indeed for us. And that's one of the reasons why we emphasize over and over again the teaching and the preaching of God's word. I've said to you before, many people will come to me and say, if God would just speak to me, I would believe. And my answer to that is always the same. When was the last time you opened your Bible? Because God does speak to us. The most holy relic. You know, at the time of the English Reformation, the Reformers got rid of all those relics. You know, St. Peter's kneecap and, you know, you know, Paul's finger or whatever it was. They got rid of all of those things that everybody was enamored with and they made it very clear the greatest relic on earth is the Holy Bible. It is God's word. These are the oracles of the Almighty and through them he speaks to us. You understand that the Bible is not a dead letter. This is not just a historical document. This is a living word, and it is through the power of the Holy Spirit that God continues to speak to us today where we are with what we're struggling with. 
And so the only way that the Christian will ever become strong, the only way that the Christian man or the Christian woman will ever grow in their faith and become mature in Christ is if they are feeding daily on God's word. Do you do that? There's been no point in American history where we have had greater access. In fact, there is no point in the Western world in which we have had greater access to the Word of God than we do right now. And yet there is no period, perhaps in all of history, when we have less knowledge of it than we do right now. What a tragedy that is. What a tragedy that is. We can probably name all the horses that ran in the Kentucky Derby yesterday, and we don't even know the books of the Bible. So, how do we feed on God? We do it by studying His Word, and it is through His Word we're told that God, the Holy Spirit, the third person of the Trinity, speaks to us. Speaks to us to do a number of things. First of all, to reveal our sins. Holy Spirit comes to convict us of our sins and of the need for righteousness. If you're feeling convicted when the preacher preaches, I want you to understand that's not the preacher. Don't blame him. That's God the Holy Spirit working on your life. So if Brian says something today, the preacher conscious, don't get mad at Brian. Don't get mad at me either because I'm not the one up there. But, but, but it, it, it's God the Holy Spirit who is pricking your conscience, who is working on you through the conduit of his word. So the Holy Spirit reveals our sins, convicts us of our need of righteousness, and then he leads us in the way that we should go. Thy word, O Lord, is a lamp unto our feet, and it is a light unto our path. So if you want to grow strong, and of course, that's what we need. We need spiritual nourishment. You will never find that in any place else, really, than in the scriptures. That is the first place to go. I shouldn't say any place else. That is the primary place where you will find your nourishment. You find it in the fellowship of the church as well and in other places too, but it is primarily through God's word. Jesus speaking to you today, you will grow strong, you will be nourished. Now I want to say a word about Holy Communion because many people read these words in which Jesus said, my Flesh is true bread, and my blood is true drink. And everybody says, well, this must be a reference then to Holy Communion. And I will say, first and foremost, I do believe that Holy Communion is a means by which we are nourished. However, I don't think that that is necessarily what Jesus is referring to here in John chapter 6. I understand why people think so. But bear in mind that at this point in the gospel narrative, in the gospel of John... The Lord's Supper had not yet been instituted. So if John is giving us at least a rough chronology of Jesus' ministry, and you remember that it was only at the Last Supper that Jesus instituted the communion service, then to say that at this point it would have made no sense whatsoever to the people. So I don't think that this is a direct reference to Holy Communion. It may be an indirect reference. It may be a kind of foreshadowing. But I don't think that Jesus is talking specifically here about the communion service. That's why I said I think he's talking primarily about his word. And you can look at those references in Jeremiah and Matthew 4 and 1 Peter chapter 2 where he speaks of his word as bread, as the means by which we are fed. 
But I do want to say a word just about Holy Communion because automatically we think of Holy Communion when we hear these words. And I think Holy Communion is a means by which we are nourished. And we're going to just venture a little bit into some theology today. How are we to understand Holy Communion? How are we to understand that the Eucharist feeds us? I think most of you probably are aware of the fact, if you're not, I'm making you aware of the fact that there are basically, historically, through the history of the church, been four views of Holy Communion and what's happening in Holy Communion. What are those four views? Well, the first view is the Roman Catholic view. And this is what is known as the doctrine of transubstantiation. Now, how many of you, as Protestants, have gone to a Roman Catholic Mass and have heard the priests say, whether it's at a wedding or a funeral, that all those who are Roman Catholics may come to receive Holy Communion? Anyone else may go forward and receive a blessing. The Roman Catholic Church has a closed communion. Now, Protestants get all offended by that. Oh, I don't like that. I don't, you know. And then I, I've even heard people say, well, I, I went up anyway. <laughs> I want to say two things in response to that. Um, number one, the Roman Catholics believe that all Christians should be in full communion with Rome. And so because they're, they're not saying that Protestants are not Christians, they're not saying Protestants are lost for eternity, that they're damned or anything like that, but they do believe that they are the fullness of the church, and they want to see all Christian bodies come into communion with Rome. And until that happens, uh, they believe that communion should only be for Roman Catholics. The second reason why they have closed communion is because Roman Catholics have a very particular understanding of Holy Communion that differs from both the Greek Orthodox, from Anglicans, and from Protestants. And that is this notion of transubstantiation. Roman Catholics believe that every time the Mass is celebrated... Every time the host is lifted with those words of administration, you oftentimes hear bells ring. What they believe is that the physical presence of Christ is manifest in the bread and the wine. In other words, the bread and the wine, in a mysterious way, literally become transformed into the body of Christ and into the blood of Christ. And this is one of the reasons, incidentally, why it wouldn't be until the Second Vatican Council that most Roman Catholics were able to receive communion in both kinds. Those of you who may have been raised Roman Catholics back in the 50s, you may recall that you went forward and you received the bread, but you did not receive the wine. And the reason for that was, the belief was that this was the literal, physical, yet it looked like bread, tasted like bread, but it was really the flesh of Christ. Looked like wine, smelled like wine, tasted like wine, but it was literally the blood of Christ. And what that meant was that if you spilled the chalice, the precious blood of Christ was lost, and so they simply did not allow the laity to take the wine, just communion in one kind. Now that changed with the Second Vatican Council, but the Roman Catholic Church's doctrine of transubstantiation has not changed. This is why on certain feast days, like the Feast of Corpus Christi, that you'll see that they place the host in what is known as a monstrance. It is this large cross-shaped thing, and in the center there is a 
glass window in which they place the host. And the faithful can come and worship and pray to Jesus in the host, in the sacrament. Incidentally, that's why they call it a host. It's because Christ is present. So that is the Roman Catholic view. And that's why they have a closed communion. The second view is the Lutheran view. Now, this was the, I don't know where Bill Christian is, if he's in here today. He's a former Lutheran. He might be able to help me out with this. But this was the Lutheran view. This was the view that was adopted by Martin Luther in the 16th century, and it's known as consubstantiation. And basically what Luther argued was that Christ was truly present in the bread and in the wine. That is to say, in the elements but he was not willing to go as far as Roman Catholics and say that it was a physical presence. So Christ was truly present in the bread, in the wine itself, but he wasn't willing to say that it was a physical presence. Now that's the view that is probably the closest to the Roman Catholic view. The third view is the Reformed view. This was the view that was adopted by most of the Protestant churches, but not all of them at the time of the Reformation. Uh, This was probably the view of most of the English Reformers. And this is the view that Christ is truly present at the time of communion. As we come forward and we receive the bread, and we receive the wine, we are lifted to that place where we feed on Christ. But it is a spiritual feeding, but Christ is truly present, spiritually speaking. Now, I want to make this very clear. Just because something is spiritual does not mean that it's not actual. It just means that it's not physical. God is spirit. God the Father does not have a body. In fact, There are three members of the Trinity. Only one of them has a body. Which one? Jesus, the second person of the Trinity, who took on human flesh, who became incarnate. You know what that word incarnate means? What's chili con carne? It's chili with the meat. Jesus took on flesh, but he is the only member of the Trinity to have done so. The Father and the Spirit do not have flesh. So basically what the reformers were saying is that Christ is truly present in a spiritual way. It is an actual presence, but it's not a physical presence. The fourth view is the view that is held by most Baptists today. And that is that this is a memorial. It's just a memorial. We we take and eat this in remembrance. Isn't that what Jesus said? He said, take and eat this in remembrance. Now, that is the one view that, as I said, most of the Reformers rejected. They did not believe that, but they acknowledged the fact that Jesus did say that. So these are the four common views. You may be wondering, well, what's the right view? Well, I love what C.S. Lewis had to say about Holy Communion. He said, we must remember the Lord's words. Jesus said, take and eat, not take and understand. There is, I think, a mystery when it comes to Holy Communion. But this is one of the two dominical sacraments instituted by the Lord. 
I'll tell you what my view is. My view is that third view, the real presence. I believe that Christ is truly present in Holy Communion. It's interesting to note that the prayer book says there's only one of these four views that is unacceptable for Anglicans. Which one? Transubstantiation. That is correct. The 39 articles say that this overthrows the nature of a sacrament, and it has given rise to great superstition. And that is true. Um, one of the reasons why in the medieval period you had to receive the host on your tongue as opposed to in your hand is because many people were taking it home and using it as a talisman. And so what they would do is they would place it on your tongue to ensure that you had actually received it, that you were not taking it home. So it gave rise to superstition and that sort of thing. So the reformers rejected the ocean of transubstantiation. Consubstantiation, it is a view that is held by some Anglicans. The memorial view is a view that is held by some Anglicans, including Thomas Cranmer at the end of his life. I, on the other hand, I think along with most Anglicans, subscribe to real presence. That Christ is truly present when we come forward to receive the bread and the wine. He is there in the communion of the people. He is truly there. And I'll tell you one of the reasons I believe that is because the Apostle Paul encourages people not to receive communion unworthily because he said many have become sick and many have died as a consequence. Well, let me tell you something. You don't get sick and die from a symbol. So there's something else taking place there. And I simply highlight all of this for you because when Jesus says, feed on me and be nourished, the primary means by which we are to do that is through his word. But holy communion is another means by which we are nourished. Uh, some years ago, um, almost 20 years ago now, I had a very serious illness and I was out of work for almost three months. And that was really, really hard. And um, because I'm a bit of a workaholic, so I, I like work, I like to do work, and I found it very, very difficult to be out of work. It was very frustrating. But I discovered that one of the things that I missed most was being able to receive Holy Communion. And I remember calling on one of my um, partners in ministry and saying, would you come over to the house and, and bring Holy Communion? And he did, and he came over to the house and he celebrated Holy Communion, and I was, I was so blessed by that. And I'll be honest with you, I say that that is part of the reason I became well as quickly as I did, because I was nourished by the sacrament. You understand, these are gifts that God has given to us that we might grow, that we might be nourished, that we might become mature Christians. And that's one of the reasons why with the 1979 prayer book, Holy Communion became the primary service on Sunday. Those of you who were raised in the Episcopal Church or in the Anglican tradition prior to 1979 under the 1928 prayer book remember, may remember the days that you normally had communion maybe once a month. That the primary service on Sunday was what? Morning prayer. Incidentally, we are probably the last church in North America to still have morning prayer as one of the principal services on Sunday. I think it's important I think it's important because it's part of our tradition. There are some wonderful prayers that we would otherwise get if we did not have morning prayer. But you understand that that was never the intention of the church, that morning prayer be the primary service. You know what morning prayer is referred to as? The daily office. Because the expectation was that people would go to church every day. 
They would go for morning prayer Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, Saturday. And then on Sunday, the Lord's Day, you would have the Holy Eucharist, which we would celebrate his death and his resurrection. Now, of course, as times have changed, Holy Communion has become the primary service on Sunday because most people don't go to church on a daily basis. But that's the background behind that. I want you to be encouraged to take advantage of these things that are gifts from God to you. This is the way that you are going to become strong. This is the way that you're going to be nourished as believers. If you are reading God's word on a daily basis, allowing him to speak to you, to guide you, to direct you, I understand that sometimes reading the Bible can be difficult. You're going to come across things that you just don't understand. It's like eating a bony fish. You ever had a fish with lots of bones in it? My advice to you when you come to passages that are difficult for you, it's like eating that fish. Eat the flesh and leave the bones to the side. There are things that you may not understand, but maybe over the course of time, God will make them clear to you. But simply because there are things that you don't understand, don't neglect his word. Don't neglect coming to church, as is the habit of some. You know, during the pandemic people got into a bad habit. And that habit was staying home and watching church as opposed to participating in church. It's not the same, folks. You cannot be nourished in the sacraments from a distance. God has given us these things that they might feed us, that we might grow strong. Now, what's at stake when we feed on Christ? Well, obviously, feeding is necessary. Eating is necessary for life. And I want to suggest to you that just as if you go on a hunger strike and you don't eat, you can become sick and you can die. The same is true spiritually speaking. If you are not feeding on Christ on a daily basis, you will become weak, you will become anemic, you will become sick, and you will spiritually perish. So Jesus says to us, as he said to them, my flesh is true food. My blood is true drink. He says, come, eat, feed on me, and find yourselves absolutely satisfied. Now, what is interesting, and we don't have time to go into it today because I talk too much about those other things, but if you look at verse 60, what was Jesus' reaction to this teaching? What were the reactions of the people, rather, to Jesus' teaching here? Verse 60, when many of his disciples heard it, they said, this is a hard saying. Who can listen to it? I want you to notice that it was the disciples who heard this and said, this is a hard saying. Now, when it says disciples, it is not a reference just to the 12. It meant all of these people who were following Jesus and up to this point were so enthusiastic about Jesus, enthralled with what he had to say, enthralled with what he was capable of doing. When they heard this particular statement, they said, this is a hard saying. Who can listen to it? And if you skip down to verse 66, you have this very sad statement. After this, many of his disciples turned back and no longer walked with him. 
what Jesus has to say here in John chapter 6 is offensive to many people. That he alone can satisfy you, that you cannot satisfy yourself, that you can only come to him unless the Father draws him, and if you do not feed on him, you will become spiritually weak, anemic, you will die, spiritually speaking. And many people found that to be absolutely offensive. The word that is translated there is hard. This is a hard saying. We're going to look at this more next week. It doesn't mean hard to understand. I mean, hard to comprehend. People understood very well what Jesus was saying. The Greek word here is skleros. It means hard to accept. Now, I understand that there are some things that Jesus said that are hard to understand. But that wasn't the problem here. The problem was that they understood very well what Jesus was saying, and they did not like it. Well, we're going to take a look at some of those hard sayings of Jesus next week. Some of the things that he says that we, we don't have a problem understanding what they mean, but we certainly have a hard time accepting them. And the question is this, what are we going to do with those hard sayings? Are we going to be like these people? Are we going to grumble? Are we going to murmur? Are we going to turn away and follow him no more? Or are we prepared to come and sit under his authority and listen to him and feed on him and find ourselves nourished for eternal life? We'll come back next week and we'll see the answer to that question. Let's pray. Father, we give you thanks and praise for this marvelous teaching in John chapter 6 where Jesus declares himself to be the food that we all need the food that cleanses us from our sin and our unrighteousness, the food that nourishes our souls, our spirits, that makes us strong, that equips us for the work of ministry. We thank you that Jesus Christ came down to give his life, that we might have something to feed upon. Pray, Father, that we would not neglect this great gift, the gift of your word, the gift of your sacraments, these things which nourish us and make us strong. And we ask that we would not neglect the fellowship that we share in Jesus Christ, that we would not cease to meet together as some are in the habit of doing, but that we would come and allow you to feed us until we want no more. For it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.